based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to another Office of Education podcast. This, another, in the AUA Expert Exchange podcast series on discussions about managing GU cancer. And today's topic is on sequencing of agents and combination of treatment options for bladder cancer. Uh, I am very pleased to introduce my co-host for this podcast, Dr. Yair Lotan. Dr. Lotan is Professor and Chief of Urologic Oncology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Uh, I also want to give Dr. Lotan a shout out as he is the immediate uh, past editor of the AUA core curriculum and did uh, so much work uh, for uh, the AUA and uh, our members in uh, really bringing the core curriculum uh, to the level that it's at. Uh, now. So uh, I am uh, eternally grateful to uh, Dr. Lotan for that. Uh, Yair, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, I appreciate uh, the uh, uh, the introduction. Uh, certainly was happy to be participating in the core curriculum. Uh, and uh, as, as you know, it's uh, under good leadership currently. Absolutely. So let's start with our learning objectives for today. They are to evaluate treatment plans, including the sequencing and combination of treatment options for individual patients, and to facilitate discussions with patients and caregivers uh, um, regarding bladder cancer treatment options. And um, this podcast is going to be pretty comprehensive as uh, we are going to discuss uh, everything from uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer right up through um, advanced bladder cancer. So, um, yeah, without any further ado, my first question is uh, just to describe the uh, today the role of uh, transurethral resection of bladder tumors and immediate postoperative chemotherapy. Great. Thank you. So, just before we talk specifically about this topic, I, I think uh, the general theme of uh, of today's conversation is that bladder cancer is a disease that um, has a high risk of recurrence and progression, and that uh, surgery alone is really insufficient for most patients with bladder cancer. Uh, 
and that a patient and their provider really need to discuss uh, short-term and long-term outcomes and really strategies to uh, try to reduce the burden of disease over time uh, rather than just as an ap episode, uh, episode of care. Um, so uh, getting specifically to your point of the role of TRBT, um, the guidelines are very clear, and, and I think this is a, a well-known fact, that TRBT is the first step of diagnosis and staging of bladder cancer. Uh, when a patient presents uh, with blood in the urine, a urologist will look in their bladder, identify a tumor, and the first step is really to go and resect the tumor, identify uh, the grade of the tumor and the stage of the tumor. And um, at that time, there is a decision to be made about whether or not uh, to instill chemotherapy in the bladder immediately after surgery. Um, the first comment is that in the guidelines, it is recommended. And the reason it's recommended is because at the time of TRBT, uh, two things occur. First of all, there are cells that are floating around the bladder. Uh, and secondly, there is a raw area in the bladder where the tumor was just resected. And the concern is that some of these cells, if they don't, uh, they are not immediately irrigated out of the bladder, may re-implant um, at that site uh, in the bladder. And so there have been multiple studies evaluating different types of chemotherapy as immediate post-operative installation uh, at the time of TRBT or immediately after within the first 24 hours. It is, however, important to note that in patients where there's concern for perforation, or extensive resection, such as a very large tumor where there's a, a large raw area, the clinician should not use post-operative chemotherapy uh, because there is a risk of extravasation and these chemotherapy uh, treatments can be very toxic and you can have a lot of pelvic pain afterwards, uh, inflammation, irritation, and the benefit is certainly not worth the risk. So um, it's very important to note that that is a contraindication. Uh, there have been multiple meta-analyses that have looked at single post-operative installation, uh, and it has shown a uh, decrease in tumor recurrence between 10 to 15% compared to TRBT alone. Uh, it certainly uh, doesn't help every patient equally. Uh, the greatest effect is in patients with single, small, low-grade tumors, uh, where the main risk is, in fact, recurrence and not progression. Uh, and this is even beneficial in those patients with inter, uh, intermediate risk disease where they might get additional adjuvant therapies. However, if you have a large tumor, uh, quickly recurrent tumors, multiple tumors, post-operative insulation may not be as helpful as in those patients with a single small tumor. I think most of the patients tolerate it quite well. Uh, single insulation can lead to some irritative uh, local symptoms. Uh, but as mentioned, severe complications are really limited to those patients uh, who have had perforation, and in those cases, it should be avoided. Um, the most commonly uh, historically used chemotherapy was mitomycin. However, in May of 2018, uh, a large uh, Southwest Oncology Group randomized trial was published in JAMA, looking at gemcitabine intravesical insulation versus saline, and it showed a significant reduction uh, overall in uh, most specifically in these low-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancers, uh, no significant grade four or five adverse events, but it did reduce recurrence over four years from 54% to 34%, which is uh, quite a dramatic decrease. 
There was also another study that looked at immediate versus giving uh, immediate installation within 24 hours compared to two-week installation. And it seemed like uh, there was uh, some benefit to giving it immediately rather than waiting up to two weeks. And so for those patients who, uh, who qualify, um, it certainly makes sense to give a post-operative installation. So standard of care for suspected uh, low intermediate grade non-muscle invasive tumors, first resection or recurrent tumors would be a single dose installation of chemotherapy with mitomycin C being the most common. Is there a time when you would choose not choose mitomycin C? You want to do an installation, but is there a time when you would choose an alternative agent like gemcitabine or, or, or something else? Yeah, there's not really uh, good randomized trials, but I've, I've switched almost completely to gemcitabine for two reasons. Uh, one is it seems to be a little bit less toxic, um, and two, it's, it's significantly cheaper. And so uh, most of my patients are getting gemcitabine currently. And there are no randomized trials, and nor do I ever expect there to be a randomized trial. Uh, but there's very good evidence that gemcitabine uh, should be equally effective uh, from the uh, SWOG randomized trial. And so I've switched almost completely from mitomycin to gemcitabine in my practice. You know, yeah, I have a technical question. In general, when you do your installation, uh, immediate uh, post-resection, do you leave a catheter in and clamp it and drain the bladder or just take the catheter out and then have uh, a patient voided out after uh, they're awake and it's uh, stayed in for a, a acceptable amount of time? So, so that's a good question. Usually one hour is the minimum that I would like. Uh, it's a bit controversial whether or not turning is even important. Um, many people think that the contour of the bladder, when it's mostly... Um, um, when it's not distended, is such that the chemotherapy will air appropriately. Um, but I usually will leave a catheter uh, um, clamped, uh, primarily because patients wake up at different paces, and um, if you, uh, you know, um, if they may or may not be up and about to uh, urinate, you know, in the first hour, and if you leave a catheter, it's very easy to drain it. Uh, there's also concern among post-operative nurses about what to do with the chemotherapy and avoiding spillage and things like that. So the easiest thing is to drain their bladder at the end of the case, put in a catheter, uh, instill, uh, instill the chemotherapy, and then uh, have an order for the post-operative nurses to just drain the bladder in that one. Great. All right, so we've covered immediate post-op chemotherapy. How about adjuvant? intravesical therapies for the patient in now whom has been resected you have your pathology back who should receive adjuvant intravesical therapy and what what should they get sure so uh, first of all the low-risk patients uh, really don't need induction intravesical therapy low-risk patients um, for the most part solitary first-time tumor uh, low-grade, non-invasive, less than three centimeters. Uh, these patients uh, have the least risk of recurrence among all the patients with bladder cancer, and um, they don't, especially if you gave them a post-operative dose, really don't need additional induction therapies. If in three months, uh, 
surveillance, they recur, they become intermediate risk, and then uh, the rules change. But but for those patients, uh, I don't give induction intravascular therapy, and the guidelines don't recommend it. Uh, in intermediate risk patients, uh, you should, at least the guidelines recommend considering six weeks induction intravascular chemotherapy or immune therapy. Uh, this is a grade B recommendation. Uh, there have been meta-analyses evaluating both BCG and mitomycin C and demonstrating a reduction in recurrence compared to no intravascular therapy. It should be noted that BCG uh, in some of these meta-analyses were superior to some of the older chemotherapy drugs, such as doxorubicin and epirubicin, but a similar outcome to mitomycin uh, with regard to preventing recurrence. Uh, BCG does have a greater risk of adverse events, certainly uh, there's a risk of BCG sepsis uh, and granulomatous cystitis and fever, uh, which is not commonly seen with intravascular chemotherapy. And there's currently a BCG shortage. So for intermediate risk patients, uh, I prefer to give intravascular chemotherapy and avoid giving BCG. Uh, I typically gave intravascular chemotherapy even when there was not a BCG shortage. But right now, I'm particularly conscientious of the fact that I want to save my BCG for high-risk patients who are most likely to benefit. High-risk patients uh, are those patients with uh, carcinoma in situ, high-grade T1 tumors, multiple, multiple recurrent high-grade TA tumors. And for those patients, the recommendation is to give a six-week induction course of BCG. This is a strong recommendation in the guidelines. Uh, these are the patients who are at most ri uh, risk for recurrence and progression uh, to muscle-invasive disease. As many as 10 to 45% will progress. And so uh, I think clinicians really need to uh, uh, strongly consider giving BCG unless there's a contraindication. Uh, the main uh, benefit of BCG uh, was in preventing recurrence, but there are some studies suggesting uh, reduced progression uh, compared to no intravascular therapy. It uh, should be noted that BCG was superior to mitomycin. However, this was only the case when BCG maintenance was added to induction. And so I think it's important for, for patients not only to get an induction course of BCG if they're high risk, but to also get uh, maintenance therapies. Uh, there are various protocols uh, uh, that vary from one to three years, uh, but I think there is uh, good evidence that maintenance uh, adds on to induction therapy for these patients. And yeah, where do we stand currently with the BCG shortage? Um, unfortunately, there's uh, still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there's there's been no indication that there's going to be um, an influx of uh, any um, more more BCG right now from Merck. Uh, there's attempts to um, for some other strains to be introduced, but. Uh, these are all uh, based on whether or not the FDA approves them, uh, and that is not an easy regulatory issue. Uh, I would certainly uh, recommend anybody who uh, has a trial open to support the SWOG trial evaluating the Tokyo strain. Uh, I think if that uh, trial is successful, then it will uh, allow another strain to be introduced. Unfortunately, uh, this is probably something that will take years and not um, and not resolve the issue uh, in the near future. I have another uh, uh, another question or request. Can you just define for our audience, when does a patient move from low risk into intermediate risk? 
Sure. So low risk is actually a pretty um, pretty narrow definition. Um, these are first time tumors, so no recurrence, solitary, small, low grade PA. Any patient with multiple tumors or recurrent tumors uh, is intermediate risk. And so uh, um, really you can only be low, low risk on your first, first TRBT. Uh, if you ever have a second TRBT, you already become recurrent. And uh, this includes those patients uh, who have repeated office fulgurations. They are also intermediate risk. Um, I don't necessarily give intravestible chemotherapy to every patient who has a second or third small uh, low-grade tumor. Uh, this is uh, these low-grade tumors are a nuisance for the most part. They very rarely uh, become high-grade. They very rarely, rarely invade, uh, if ever. And so it's really a discussion with the patient about uh, how uh, how much of a burden it is for them. And obviously, it has to do with you know the frequency. If somebody who has a low-grade tumor every other year probably doesn't uh, think that six weekly treatments of intravascular chemotherapy makes sense. However, a person with second or third recurrence within a year uh, might view this with a higher degree of anxiety, and uh, in those patients, induction uh, intravascular chemotherapy may make sense. Yeah, I wanted to get your quick opinion uh, on the current trials on the use of immune therapy for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And that's been a topic of some of our other podcasts, but uh, just thought maybe you could give us a, a quick comment on that since it kind of fits into uh, what we're talking about just before we move on to muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, sure. Um, there are a, a variety of uh, of uh, potential therapies um, uh, with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, the um, pembrolizumab uh, trial completed and uh, likely uh, will go to the FDA uh, for patients with BCGN responsive disease. Um, there's also uh, the um, uh, a form of immune therapy with adenovirus conjugate uh, for uh, adsilidrin, uh, which completed a, uh, its uh, pivotal trial, which will likely lead it to go to the FDA. These are uh, really currently just in patients with BCG unresponsive disease, and uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how receptive the FDA is uh, to these two applications, but it's quite possible that within the, six, in the next six to 12 months, there'll be two FDA-approved agents um, uh, for patients with BCG unresponsive disease. Um, there's also some thought uh, and some trials ongoing in patients who uh, have had a recurrence after induction BCG comparing uh, combination therapy of BC versus uh, a BCG plus an agent versus BCG alone. Um, and uh, likely uh, some of these uh, trials will be published, whether or not they um, are positive and show benefit over BCG alone is a little too early to say. Uh, but I think there is um, significant interest in trying to improve on treatments uh, that would allow you to avoid cystectomy in patients who have recurrent uh, non-invasive high-grade disease. Great, thanks. I know we went a little off track there, but I just thought it was uh, 
it, it was relevant for the topic. Well, now moving on to those patients who um, look like they will need cystectomy for muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, what is the current role of neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Sure. So I think um, I think there are a couple of things that you know that are important um, to discuss with a patient with muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, I think that uh, first of all, it's important to recognize that for these patients, a multidisciplinary approach is going to be important. Uh, that urologists are obviously the ones who diagnose the patient with muscle invasive bladder cancer, uh, but they should be able to have a discussion with the patient about the pros and cons of either new adjuvant chemotherapy or adjuvant therapy. Uh, they should also be able to speak about uh, bladder preservation therapies. And both new adjuvant and adjuvant therapies requ you know, require cooperation with a medical oncologist, and bladder preservation therapies, which we'll touch on a little bit later, uh, really are trimodalities in the purest sense. A urologist, a medical oncologist, and radiation oncologist all have to cooperate. Uh, because of the fact that uh, the urologist is the person who's presenting the treatment options to the patient initially, it's very important that they can give a fair uh, picture to the patient uh, because um, the patient may or may not end up seeing a medical oncologist or radiation oncologist based on the recommendation of the urologist. Um, and these are difficult decisions. They impact both uh, quantity of life, but also quality of life. And so uh, I think it's very important, uh, both for the patient and the clinician, to be able to uh, wade through um, uh, the pros and cons of each approach. And unfortunately, many of our patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer are, are elderly. Uh, they have other comorbidities. Some of these offer challenges in terms of uh, tolerating two or three different treatment courses. And so the decision on how to proceed is, is actually uh, sometimes difficult and, and requires uh, weighing the, the risks and benefits for, for each uh, aspect of it. Um, I think let's, let's start with a new adjuvant chemotherapy because this is, um, this is something that would obviously happen before cystectomy. And, um, uh, the guidelines currently say that clinicians should offer cisplatinum-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy for eligible radical cystectomy patients prior to cystectomy. And there's actually a strong recommendation uh, with an evidence level of grade B, which actually for the guidelines is actually quite good. And this has to do with the fact that there's level one evidence for improved survival by giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy to patients um, before cystectomy. Uh, the randomized trials have shown about a 5 to 10% survival benefit uh, with 20% uh, reduction in bladder cancer-specific mortality. And this is um, a fairly significant reduction and, uh, in fact, mirrors the benefits of chemotherapy in, in women with breast cancer where giving chemotherapy around the time of a mastectomy uh, is actually quite routine. Uh, for patients in the U.S. currently, uh, I'd say only about 20 to 30% are currently getting new adjuvant chemotherapy. So there's still quite a way to go in terms of acceptance for this. Um, it is important to note, though, that, it's import that the evidence for a benefit for new adjuvant chemotherapy is for patients who can get cisplatinum. The guidelines specifically say that clinicians should not prescribe carboplatin-based new adjuvant chemotherapy. And if you're not eligible to get cisplatinum, then you should not get neoadjuvant chemotherapy 
prior to cystectomy, just getting carboplatin. Great. Um, what about uh, the uh, introduction of immune therapy into neoadjuvant treatment for bladder cancer? So there's a lot of interest in, um, in introduction of uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Um, I think that it's a little too early to adopt this. Uh, but there uh, have been uh, early results from the PURE 1 trial, which looked at giving neoadjuvant pembrolizumab to patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer, which showed actually a, a fairly considerable PT0 rate of 37% and a PT1 or less rate of 55%, which obviously is, this is not a randomized trial with chemotherapy, but runs very similar to the results from uh, various studies looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which had uh, similar uh, PT zero rate, uh, somewhere in the 38 to 40 percent range. Uh, these um, treatments can be, uh, first of all, less toxic than chemotherapy, uh, and can be used in patients who are uh, platinum ineligible. Now, they're not approved for these uh, for uh, neoadjuvant uh, treatment. Uh, and that, that still requires uh, FDA approval, uh, nor are they currently recommended by the guidelines. Uh, but uh, I think that it's very important uh, to keep an eye out on these treatments because um, uh, I suspect that not only the PEMBRO trial, but other trials uh, will, uh, will um, complete enrollment. And it's quite possible that these agents will be approved uh, in this setting and will be potentially quite important for patients with renal insufficiency who are not eligible for cisplatinum. And did you say that the PURE 1 trial was for muscle invasive bladder cancer with variant histology? Um, it included patients with variant histology. And the most recent report that was published uh, this year and uh, just as actually last month in European Urology uh, highlighted the variant histology, but overall the study uh, included all patients who are clinically T2 to T4 node negative. Uh, they just happened to, in their updated uh, report, comment specifically about variant histologies. But I think this is more to do with the fact that in order to publish an update, you have to have some angle. But it did give an updated, um, uh, an update for the study. So there were more patients enrolled in this particular uh, recent publication than the original publication. Uh, so um, this is just updated information in terms of the rates of PT0 rate. Great. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, we spoke about neoadjuvant chemotherapy. How about adjuvant chemotherapy and, uh, um, and its place uh, today in the treatment of bladder cancer? Sure. So obviously many patients uh, do not get neoadjuvant chemotherapy either uh, because uh, they weren't eligible, they didn't decide that the survival benefit was sufficient, uh, maybe they were symptomatic and wanted their bladder out, maybe they had a discussion with their clinician. But it turns out that they have non-organ-confined disease uh, PT3, PT4, or node-positive uh, node disease. And now they're concerned because those patients have a very high risk 
uh, 50 to 70 percent risk of recurrence. And uh, they are potentially good candidates for adjuvant chemotherapy. One of the reasons that the guidelines have a moderate recommendation rather than a strong recommendation for adjuvant chemotherapy is that there is no good level one evidence from any single trial for adjuvant chemotherapy. There were about five or six underpowered trials, and so the level of evidence is lower. However, there were meta-analyses published taking all the underpowered trials, putting them together, and uh, when you do that and you pull the analysis across, uh, in this one, meta-analysis, nine trials, there was about a 25% reduction um, in mortality um, and an improvement in disease-free survival and overall survival. And so the evidence is not as strong as new adjuvant chemotherapy, uh, but, uh, but for patients who have more advanced disease after cystectomy, uh, there's certainly good rationale for giving them adjuvant treatment. And uh, there was greater benefit in patients who had positive nodes, possibly because they're at the highest risk for recurrence. It's also important to note that there are multiple uh, trials looking at checkpoint inhibitors um, in this space, and these trials uh, may turn out to be attractive, especially in patients who have renal insufficiency and could not get cisplatinum-based adjuvant therapy. Um, it's also important to note that some of the new adjuvant trials uh, are combined new adjuvant adjuvant trials where patient will get a new adjuvant checkpoint inhibitor and then stay on the therapy for up to a year. So they really uh, are trying to combine uh, the treatment before and after cystectomy. Um, in either case, these are large, adequately powered trials, and when they uh, do report out, if they show a survival benefit, uh, almost certainly they will um, they will be uh, recommended uh, um, for therapy uh, in this type of population. Great. All right. The last thing that I'd like to discuss with you is bladder preservation, and what do we do? Or what is our the, the current state of the art for patients with non-metastatic muscle invasive bladder cancer who either wish to retain their bladders or uh, simply are not candidates for cystectomy because of medical comorbidities? Sure. I, I think we have to start off with a premise that every patient probably would like to keep their bladder. And um, the fact is that Historically in the U.S., uh, bladder preservation has not been uh, commonly used in treating patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, however, there's been some growing, um, uh, growing emphasis on trying to uh, work with patients uh, uh, to try to preserve their bladder if they're reasonable candidates. Uh, I think we need to start off with the fact that not every patient with muscle invasive bladder cancer is a good candidate. Uh, there are patients uh, who are not good candidates either because of tumor location, tumor size, tumor bulk, or a high risk of non-organ confined disease. Uh, patients who have hydronephrosis, who have a tumor over the trigone, uh, who have uh, a tumor that's too large to adequately resect, are not going to be good candidates for bladder preservation. However, there are patients who have tumors 
uh, in favorable locations near the dome, uh, maybe the posterior or lateral wall, they can be completely resected. We do not have evidence of non-organ confined disease uh, and who prefer to try to keep their bladder who might be good candidates. Uh, and as you mentioned, unfortunately, there are some patients who, uh, because of cardiac issue or other comorbidities, would not be able to tolerate a radical cystectomy, which is a procedure with a high uh, risk for morbidity and which does require anesthesia from anywhere from uh, four to six hours, depending on the type of diversion, experience of the surgeon, prior operative issues, et cetera. Um, now, it is important to note that this is trimodal therapy, as we mentioned earlier. The first step is to try to resect all the tumor that is visible in the bladder. It is important to also assess for multifocal disease, such as carcinoma in situ. Patients with high volume disease or multifocal carcinoma in situ probably are not going to be very good candidates because it's very difficult to eradicate carcinoma in situ with chemo radiation protocols. Uh, however, if you're able to uh, resect all visible tumor, you don't have a lot of multifocality, then uh, after resection, chemotherapy combined with external beam radiation um, would be the next step. Usually people use radio sensitizers such as cisplatinum or 5-FU and mitomycin. Um, and it's important to note that you have to have a planned reevaluation of the bladder to determine if the treatment works. So generally speaking, patients uh, will go back and you'll go and re-resect. Uh, and patients have to understand that if they did not have a good response, that removing the bladder is part of the, of the strategy for patients who undergo a bladder preservation approach, knowing that up to a third of patients will not respond well and will still need to have their bladder removed. Um, it's also important to note that TRBT alone, radiation alone, do not work well as curative approaches. They sometimes can be used to palliate patients, but they should not be considered uh, adequate alternatives to radical cystectomy. Great. Well, uh, yeah, I think we've uh, certainly covered the topic of um, non-metastatic bladder cancer uh, very well today from uh, the use of uh, uh, initial uh, single-dose chemotherapy at the time of tumor resection all the way to uh, adjuvant chemotherapy and then um, um, uh, ways in which we can try and preserve the bladder uh, in patients uh, uh, wanting to avoid cystectomy or unable to uh, to have a cystectomy. Uh, any final words to our audience regarding um, anything on bladder cancer? Well, I think that it's uh, important to note that it's a difficult disease because of the heterogeneity, especially non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, there are some patients with small, non-aggressive, low-grade uh, tumors. And there's some patients who have high-grade T1 disease that, is, that can be very aggressive and life-threatening. And I think it's important early on to have a good discussion with the patient about the expectations. A uh, patient with a high risk of recurrence and progression needs to understand up front that just because they're going to get intravestal therapies does not mean that they're necessarily going to work. 
and they need to understand that it's possible that they will end up needing more aggressive therapies down the road. But for a patient with muscle invasive disease, I think they need to understand that uh, our staging is not adequate. Uh, even patients with normal CT scans have lymph node involvement 20% of the time. About 30 to 40% of patients are understaged. And they need to understand that the reason that we recommend additional therapies, either as neoadjuvant or adjuvant, is that there is a high risk of mortality and that these treatments have been shown to reduce death rates from bladder cancer. And that surgery alone is likely not going to necessarily work for everybody uh, and that there's some patients that are going to need additional therapy. And having these discussions up front prepares the patient and also allows them to consider all their options because multimodal approaches really are the key to trying to get the best outcomes for patients with bladder cancer. Great. Well, Yair, uh, uh, yeah, uh, thank you uh, again for taking the time um, to do this for our uh, audience. I would also like to thank the audience for listening. Uh, as always, if you would like more information, uh, please visit us at auanet.org university. Thank you. Thank you very much.